Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstravel.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. We're sitting here in the Sonoran Desert. It's mid-morning, and it's a little bit cold, but we're sitting underneath a canvas tent by a fire. And I'm sitting here with Arturo Ramirez. Arturo is a humble artist. And some of the artwork that I've seen him do is carving on gourds. He's very interested in ancient symbols. So first of all, I just wanted to say thank you for making the time and the energy to join me on the Trail Less Travel today and share your stories. Very welcome. My first question for you is, where did you grow up and how was adventure a part of your childhood? Where I came from is northern New Mexico. I was born in, in a town called Española, New Mexico, which is on the road between Santa Fe and Taos. My mother's family was from that part of New Mexico. My father's family was from northern New Mexico in the Springer area, which is more of a ranching communities type area. So when I was born, I was raised in Springer, New Mexico for the most part until I was 12 years old. So interestingly enough, on my mother's side, her father was full-blooded Native American and her mother was half Native, half Spanish, but claimed full Spanish, no Native because that's the way that it was back in those times. It wasn't real rewarding to tell people in the 40s and 50s in northern New Mexico that you were a native in any way, so everybody with brown skin wanted to be Hispanic, so everybody was Hispanic. Very opposite type of family than my father's family, which were ranching, farming family, so lived completely self-sustained, and when you're ranching, farming, food is never an issue, which... I found interesting because my mother's side of the family, food was always an issue. On my father's side of the family, food was never an issue. And just the different nuances that that brings out in people. And mother's side of the family, very loving, caring, supporting. Everything was done in that respect. Where on the father's side of the family, it was very work-related. Not a lot of space for feelings or you got a splinter or a, or a, got a blister or anything like that. You just had to keep on working. So it was very interesting growing up with two completely different spectrums of how to raise children and how to get along with each other. Lean more heavily towards the ranching farming side for whatever reason, I guess maybe because we lived with the grandparents where my father lived, so that must be why for that. The ranch we did grow up on large ranch, 300 acres, had three rivers running through it, a lot of wildlife, a lot of adventure, a lot of rattlesnakes. (laughs) Growing up was very interesting because on the one hand, a lot of my family were growing up in the cities and we were growing up going the other direction, more towards butchering our own animals, growing and harvesting our own vegetables and fruits and building what we needed and recycling a lot of from what I remember anytime they'd be driving along out in the middle of nowhere and they'd find a part of a car or a big piece of tin or blew off someone's ranch 15 miles away or something like that they'd always pick it up and save it for something 
and something always seemed to come. So I always remember lots of scrap of this, scrap of that, but being put to use somewhere so sooner or later. My father's family, for whatever reason, all seemed to gravitate towards the correctional field, which I found interesting because I think more of it has to do with for monetary gain versus having to do admirable work. I think it had to do more with that very limited abilities to find work, so I think that's what drove most of them towards the, in that direction, which is very interesting because then you grow up with a lot of people that are very tuned into human behavior, good and bad. What I always found very interesting about growing up in correctional-oriented families is that everybody called you on everything you did. You know, there was no secret feelings. If, if somebody saw you doing something they thought was, wasn't cool, they let you know it. And no secrets. It was hard for me when I first found out that there's people out there that don't tell you everything. They keep parts of it to themselves. I found that a very strange concept because I was raised in a family where you were called out on anything and everything, good and bad, and not in a way where you were belittled or mocked, but in a nurturing, hey, I'm trying to lend you a hand here kind of way. So that was very, very, very interesting. Probably the most pivotal part of my life was when I was 12. We moved on to a 3,000-acre prison farm. So there was probably 400, 300, 400 inmates. It's a working farm. It's not like a prison where you see on television that they're caged up and banging their cups and f flashing their little mirrors and their hand signs. This is where you had inmates on horseback herding cattle, inmates on the ground branding cattle, you know, training horses, slaughtering sheep, cows, pigs, chickens. I also remember tasting commercial beef for the first time in my life when it wasn't actual beef from a, a farm-raised cow. It was actually store-bought beef, and it was considerably different. Well, I don't know if that's from it was fed or if it's from antibiotics or medications or what, but noticeable difference. But the prison farm happened to be on a gigantic Native American village, so every time they plowed for planting new crops or plowed a new place for more apple trees or whatnot there was always turning up artifacts so tended to have a lot of people from the University of New Mexico Anthropology Department coming around to see what was happening but just dealing with the inmates and living in a house that was I don't know several hundred years old when we moved into it made of adobe made to last never had a heating or air conditioning because when the walls are that thick the way they built that house, you don't need heating and or air conditioning. Another thing I thought growing up was that everybody lived in a several hundred year old adobe house. I didn't realize other people had frame houses. And we never went to other people's houses that I remember that were kids and whatnot growing up. We always stayed on the prison for some reason. I'm not sure why. Yeah, we're Southern you and Apache and Mexican and German. The way the bloodline from the native side got in, into our history, I try not to go into that too much because it's not the rosiest of pictures. The Mexican side, just they, there they were. The German side, I have an ancestor that came to the Mora Valley in a little bit northern middle New Mexico and opened the first commercial meal. Not so much flour because it, I guess they would meal anything you brought to them. That's where every now and then a, one of my Brothers will pop up with blue eyes or green eyes and blonder hair when most everybody else is dark skin and 
and then brown eyes. So, so that's where that German part came in. Native traditions always have to do with lifestyle and choices and why almost every little story has to do with what's wrong out there and how you can make it right. One of the things I poignantly remember is that never to try to make any decisions through your brain. All your decisions and all your thought processes go from your brain through your heart out. They can't come out of your brain, they have to come out of your heart. Because when information comes straight from your brain out of your mouth, it tends to be unfiltered, it tends to be hurtful, it tends to be too raw, where anything that comes out of your heart is automatically filtered for the better. There's probably a thousand sayings out there that deal with the same subject, but a lot of sayings like, think before you speak, better to keep quiet and nobody knows you're a fool, then open your mouth and everybody knows you're a fool. So a lot of that has to do with filtering, like I said, filtering through your heart versus through your brain. It just makes it for a kinder, gentler environment for everybody. What I really, really enjoy about a lot of Native culture now is that Everybody and have been for years and years and years trying to figure out and reclaim who they are and keep those traditions alive. Like I says in the in my grandmother's era, nobody wanted to be considered native because of this the stigma and this is only a certain part of the USA, but still the stigma wasn't the best for if you were a native, so like I said everybody wanted to say they were Hispanics. Along with that, my grandfather drove a natural gas truck and filled up people's propane and delivered to a lot of Pueblos. And when people would come up short on money, they would pay them in pottery or blankets or jewelry. My grandmother was so adamant about not admitting to a native culture that she would somehow dispose of all this stuff he brought home. And to this day, nobody really knows where all of that stuff went, but uh, whether she threw it away, sold it, traded it, buried it nobody knows but she didn't want any vestiges of native tradition in her home because of the stigma and then you got her husband speaking fluent Tawa to all his children and friends and whatnot but um, it's just interesting how you live in both cultures at the same time and how you identify with both cultures at the same time and at different times. And New Mexico, the thing about New Mexico that's very interesting is that it's so culturally diverse in terms of the natives, the Hispanics and the Anglos have got along so well there for so many years that there's almost no racism in terms of subtle. It's subtle, of course, like anywhere else, but it's not very in-your-face racism where everybody, in New Mexico, everybody tends to get along a lot better than most other parts of the country. When I travel, I notice that a little more obvious than in New Mexico. The Trail Less Traveled podcast and international outreach programs are made possible by the support from listeners such as yourself. For the cost of a cup of coffee once a month, you can support the show on Patreon. Patreon can offer you a subscription-style payment method in the amount of your choice in exchange for priority access to the Trail Less Traveled visual series, exclusive content, behind-the-scenes footage, and ad-free podcasting. Please consider helping keep my fiscal raft afloat by visiting patreon.com slash traillesstraveled.
We're sitting here in the Sonoran Desert next to a fire. It's mid-morning. And I'm sitting next to Arturo Ramirez. And he is a humble artist. We're going to talk to him a little bit about his art now. But before we start that, Arturo, could you describe to the listener what you see when you look out into the distance into the Sonoran Desert? Well, we're surrounded by creosote bushes, saguaro cactuses, beautiful jagged mountains, beautiful open sky, beautiful blue sky, and just the most clean, clear atmosphere you could ever hope to find yourself in. That's where we're at. Yes, it's lots of canvas, lots of rope, lots of stakes, and a nice structure, three pieces, nice and big. A nice big campfire pan with some mesquite burning in. Been burning a lot of mesquite from tree trimming and whatnot, and that's where we're at. Arturo, when I first met you, we connected through symbolism. Um, the tattoos on my right arm, Maori tattoo, and you have a similar uh, water-based tattoo on your leg. You also noticed the symbol of the Berber tribe, for me at least, on my right arm. And you said that there's hundreds of tribes around the world that have a connection to that symbol. So I'd like to talk to you now about symbolism and some of the knowledge that you've gathered about symbolism in different tribes around the world and how you incorporate it into your art. Yes, symbolism, the reason I find symbolism so interesting is because just the ability to convey so much energy and meaning and significance into the smallest of of drawings, whether it's a very small scratch on a rock surface or if it's an elaborate panel tucked under some sandstone cliff somewhere in the desert southwest, that symbolism meant something to somebody a very, very, very long time ago. And that's what I find so interesting is that piece of it where symbolism is so universal, so worldwide. Some of the things I find very interesting about symbols in general is just how worldly universal a lot of symbols are, where you could take Mesoamerican Mayan symbols and you could take some ancient Asian American symbols and artistic features and there might as well be conveyed by the same exact artist because either the knowledge base you know tens of thousands of years ago was a lot more well known than we would tend to think it is or there was just humankind all decided on certain symbolism independently but it was all practically similar and again everything's probably modeled off of, of what's out in nature modeled of what you see in the sky modeled about what you feel in your heart the thing I love about symbols is that I love them when they're very fluid, when they're very, they have a, a lot of what I would consider feminine traits to symbols. Masculine traits I consider to be more pointy, more flat, edged, where female symbolism I tend to, in my own heart, see it more curvy, more circular, soft angles, soft curves, more pleasing to my eye anyway. What I do love about ancient, ancient symbolism, like I said, it's hard to distinguish culture to culture because some artists had the same kind of eye. I'm not at all into the ancient gold art. You know, that's very cool. It's very cool what the Mayans could do with gold, and it's very cool what the Inca could do with gold. But I'm more interested in, in petroglyphs. I'm more interested in ceremonial, traditional designs that have meaning versus just the design just for artistic merit in itself. But I think if I had to pick one 
single art form that I enjoy the most, it would probably be Mesoamerican, Mayan, even Aztec, Olmec, Toltec. I'm starting to really enjoy researching a lot of clay products that the Mayan, Aztec, Incas, Olmecs all developed. And just think pottery in itself, the evolution of pottery from a non-existent resource to humans quickly figuring out how to do everything with pottery. In terms of artwork, my primary focus of artwork is gourds. Indigenous people have known about gourds since day one. Um, I find it interesting back in the 80s when I first got heavily into working with gourds. If you asked a modern American what a gourd was, most would not know. But if you asked a Native American or African American or Asian American or even some Anglo people would know, but most people had no knowledge of what a gourd was. Even knowing that back in the early, early years of America, where America was still in its infancy, gourds were one of the primary resources and items that every American family had in those days. And mostly they would use them for darning needles or they would use them to keep their wool for knitting or they'd keep beads and baubles that just were containers. Like the modern day equivalent, I guess, would be Tupperware where back in the olden days, in all cultures, gourds were, everybody had a gourd, and most everybody had several gourds. Gourds were passed down generationally even. That's how valuable they were at one time. So gourds do predate pottery, in that gourds were here tens of thousands of years before pottery was even developed. And my version of how pottery became a useful tool for humans is a lot of the early pottery had an indentation on the bottom of the pottery where a gourd has the same indentation from growing naturally. And so I, in my brain, think that some person found clay, covered a gourd in clay just for something to do, saying, you know, amusement of some kind, set that gourd covered with clay near the fire or in the fire, either on purpose or not on purpose, the gourd burns away and the human being is left with a hard vessel that can be used for water storage, food storage, seed storage, container. You know, you can keep things in it. You can eat out of it. You can drink out of it. And that's how I think it all came about. I might be completely off, but it's probably some version of that. Gourds, they do theorize that they started out in the African continent in some spot. And I heard recently, within the last three or four years, that they found a wild patch of bottleneck gourds growing somewhere in Africa, which is unusual because the current mindset is that gourds need to be propagated by humans. If there's no humans, there's no gourds. So it has to be a symbiotic relationship between the gourds and the humans. So whether that's a true wild plat of gourds or not, I'm not sure, but in terms of culturally, every culture except probably the Arctic cultures had quite a use for gourds and probably had gourds in all respects of life. One of my favorite gourd specimens is a small gourd vessel that was found in a place called Huaca Prieta. It's a very small gourd, but it's carved with very stylistic felines of some kind with a little lid. And this gourd vessel was so old that when they found it, it was a consistency of cigar ash. It was so old and fragile. So they 
set it in some kind of a adhesive where it solidified the entire piece and the piece to this day still exists and I have recreated it a couple of times only because I enjoy the artwork on it. For many 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 years I painted gourds like pottery and recently in the last four years five years I've been creating more and more gourd rattles. For me the ceremonial piece of the rattle, the musical piece, the centering piece, the balancing piece, the healing piece portion of gourd rattles is what has probably kept me in the rattle game for the, uh, longer than most other artworks that I do. I do really enjoy that. And in terms of gourd rattles, as rattles go, a rattle represents the three truths or the three kingdoms, which is the natural world, the mineral world, the plant world, and the animal world. Animal kingdom, plant kingdom, and mineral kingdom. So the rocks inside a rattle, I collect them from anthills. Anytime I'm near a culturally significant place, I try to find an anthill, obviously not on the site, but somewhere near it, and gather some anthill rocks. And what I find significant and, and culturals find significant about anthill rocks is they're brought from within the earth to the surface of the earth and then brought it up as a gift to be used. And so I use those within my gourd rattles. If I don't adorn the outside of the gourd rattle with feathers, then I put bits of feather into the rattle itself. So that would represent the animal kingdom. And of course the gourd itself and the wooden handle represent the plant kingdom. And then the anthill rocks represent the mineral kingdom. I don't adorn my rattles with beads and feathers and baubles and fancy trinkets and whatnot because I consider mine more to be used primitively, you know, not have to worry about how you put it away to crush feathers or how you put it away to scrape off beads accidentally. So very hardy, very hardy item will always be there for a person's use as they want it to be used. What I always ask people that do possess my gourd rattles is that if they ever somehow accidentally break one or damage it or somehow becomes unuseful to keep the pieces together and burn them in an outdoor fire, not chuck them in the trash or drop them in the dumpster at the AMPM gas station, but to actually save it somewhere and when you're out camping or whatnot, put it in a fire and just let it go back to its creator because... It doesn't want to just be left. Because a rattle is a living, breathing, metaphorically, a living, breathing piece of property that's not to be taken lightly. When most mainstream people think of rattles, they think of children. And why would you hand a child a rattle? Because it brings the child back into focus and, and changes their mindset. Why is that? Because they're finding their center balance again all by themselves. And so... Rattles are musical as well, but in my brain, they're more ceremonial and more used for centering, grounding and healing and taking a person's mind out of where they're currently at and then taking them somewhere else. The wood handles that I use on my gourd rattles, I have, first of all, two mesquite trees in my yard that always need trimming for some reason. And when the wood is adequate enough in diameter, I save them for handles. If I do find deadfall saguaros, I do leave an offering for the saguaros and then take one or two short pieces of ribs. I don't try to gather as much as I can off of everything I see. I just try and pick here and there and just leave resources for the next generation or maybe an animal needs it for a nest or a rabbit needs it for a shelter. So I just don't denude the whole 
desert of what I find. I just take little bits here and little bits there. Same with anthill rocks. Ants all over the New Mexico and Colorado and Arizona have got to taste corn nuts because I carry corn nuts to smash for them as a gift to them for their anthill rocks. And what I find interesting about dropping a, some crushed corn nuts on an anthill is they find it almost instantly and it's gone almost as fast. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I don't know if that salt is good for the ants, but they sure enjoy it while they can. <laughs> I'd like to get to the point where I sealed my gourds with actual natural sinew and natural adhesive. Mostly lack of resources is, is why I haven't gone that route yet. It almost seems to be anymore when you teach a class with people, people want things quicker. They don't want time-consuming. They don't want taking time. It's always something that needs to happen quickly, and if it's not super glued quickly and dries quickly and they can go on to the next class quickly, then I don't think people are happy. For most part, that's the reason for that. But I do want to get to the point one day where everything is naturally done and it does take time and you're going to have to take your time because you can't go faster, it's not going to work. It's not something that happens quickly. Back to cultures and symbolism, I find it interesting that some people are reluctant to use ancient designs on artwork and my version of that is if you find a beautiful design and you want to use it to beautify the world and uh, I don't know why anybody has problems with that because beautiful design should permeate every surface you know graffiti shouldn't be a crime if it's not done for vandalism's sake if it's beautiful graffiti I mean I've seen graffiti that I'd love to, to be able to look at every single day of my life so I guess only when it's done for destructive purposes is when there's a problem with that. But And it has to be certain kind of artwork again. I guess everybody has what they like and what they don't like in the art world. But my version of it is if it brings a smile to somebody's face or makes somebody happy to see what they're looking at, then it's 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 been solved. It's, it's good to go. One of the things that I find pretty cool is that if people think you're a native, then... Oh, you can sing, you can drum, you can bead. And that's not always the case. You you only know what you've been taught and you only do what you know you can do. And there's no way around that. That's the voice of Arturo Ramirez. And we're sitting underneath his canvas tent in the Sonoran Desert by the fire. Just put a, another piece of wood on the fire. And Arturo, let's talk a little bit about the symbol on the rattle that I saw someone walking around with yesterday would look like an eagle and how you put those symbols on the gourd i'd also like to talk to you about the symbol that's on my arm and how that connects with you and where you come from and some of the other cultures around the world the symbol on that gourd it's an actually a mesoamerican stamp symbol it's a stamp of a bird what i like about it is concentric circles and the carvings i do on the gourds are done with a modern tool power carving tool the symbols I always put on the rattles are either sky symbols, which would, when I say sky symbols, I'm talking moon, the planets, any kind of natural phenomenon like meteorites or asteroids. I like to put, like I said, the moon. I like to put a lot of sacred geometry symbolism in my artwork, like whether it be a square, a circle, triangle, tetrahedron, anything like that. A lot of numerical significance as well. 
sacred geometry and sacred mathematics, the number nine is very consistent in mankind for a lot of reasons, and so I use the number nine. Usually I'll, when I signify the number nine in my artwork, it's using the Mayan glyph for the number nine, which is the flat bar on the bottom with the four dots right above. Of course, the number three, the number four, the number 12, there's significance in each of those numbers for, for different reasons. I think because I'm so tied to those numbers and what they mean astronomically and through sacred geometry and through other teachings is I think what I find that so rewarding to not only have that knowledge but pass that knowledge on to somebody else in the form of a gourd rattle. And whether they know the significance or not, someday they might be interested enough to find out what it does mean and go from there. Sacred geometry, it's one of those topics that it's hard where to start and it's hard to say where to end because there's so much information out there regarding sacred geometry and people throughout the ages that have discovered mathematical formulas and mathematical information that it's painfully obvious that as human beings are locked in to mathematics somehow in some way such things as like the Fibonacci sequence and, and mathematical information like that it can't just be random there has to be some kind of higher power has figured humans out DNA out nature out weather patterns rocks trees how things grow acorns pine cones there's all sequences to that that are numerical in nature. It even boils over in, into music. And I was talking to somebody last night that we were talking about how a person can be a complete novice in terms of uh, orchestra, but if one person is off key in an orchestra, the most novice of human beings can pick up on that missed note. And how is that that people that aren't even taught anything about music can hear? one note that's off out of an entire orchestra but all humans are capable of that so something in our DNA wrapped in there in terms of even music where we know naturally when music is off key and we know naturally when music is perfect and it amazes me that tens of thousands of years ago human beings had this knowledge and created stone structures based on this knowledge so they would have a structure that would be the perfect hertz where human beings, the most natural of sounds, could come from. And that has happened all over the world. That has happened in the Americas, that has happened in Europe, that's happened in the Asias, that's happened in the Africas, that's happened in every part of the continent where human beings, through music, have found a perfect balance and through ceremony. In terms of botany, even, for there to be so many plants in the Amazon and human beings have figured out the usefulness of each and every plant to where modern medicine is all based on ancient remedies from shamanesses all over the world that have basically turned on modern man to the medicines they have. And then modern man just synthesizes it and goes from there. But every ancient culture had all the remedies already planned out in their head. No matter what part of the world a person came from, their family and their neighbors and their community knew what they needed to do for what they needed to do it for. There was no confusion in that regard. 
the human symbol, and what did you call it on your arm? Well, the Yaz is what it's called in Morocco, and it's the symbol of the Amizar nation, or the Berber tribe, as they're called by some. They call themselves the free people, so for them it's a little person standing with their arms in the air, symbolizing freedom. Interesting. I didn't know the arm part was the freedom part, but the symbol she's referring to is a human in stick figure form. And that's one of the symbols that has been found throughout the world in many, many, many cultures is that, the human figure form. And interestingly, every group of humans calls themselves the humans or the people. The Navajos, in their language, they're the people. And the Utes, in their language, they're the people. And Apaches, in their language, they're the people. And Hopis, in their language, they're the people. So I think everybody used the euphemism of the people for their group. So that stick figure man symbol, like we discussed earlier, is one of the most worldwide used symbols. There's 25 to 30 symbols that they have found around the world that are pretty consistent. A lot of them, the form of the cross, a square, a circle, uh, grid patterns, like human figures, anthropomorphic figures. So they're basic in, in sense, but they're also worldwide. That's what I find interesting about symbolism. And symbols, it's interesting when you see people, it's human nature when you see somebody wearing something and it has a logo on it, you want to see what the logo is. And not for logo's sake, but I think it's the human beings are drawn to what does that person have which identifies them. And to a lot of people, it could be the name on a jacket, could be the name on shoes, on apparel, on a backpack, on a sticker, on a license plate. I think it's just an identifying factor where people find that interesting. I always find it interesting when I see a symbol or a design that I've never seen before. It's usually somebody's version of an existing design. When uh, computers first became a thing, for a split second I wanted to, to get into making designs using a computer. And then I quickly realized that it took an element of freedom away from yourself when you're using an apparatus to draw a straight line or a half circle or a perfect triangle versus trying to learn to do that on your own. So I shied away from the computer as a form of artistic expression early on because I realized it was more foreign. It didn't feel at all natural. It felt like, I don't know, it felt like I was cheating in some strange way, cheating myself more than the art market. But So I shied away from that. I try to do more natural than unnatural, but a lot of times you have to do more unnatural than natural just based on resources. But the symbolism of humanity, like we were saying, the human figure, the symbol I always enjoyed researching for years and years and talking to people about from all cultures is the symbol of the Coco Pele, the humpback flute player. So many different versions of who he is and what he was. Everybody has their own, but... As a petroglyph, the Coco Pele style petroglyph has been found from the tip of Chile all the way deep into Canada. So I'm sure that that petroglyph had many meanings to many different people and many different cultures. My version of it is Coco Pele is just a form of a of traveling salesman. But instead of having Avon products or Bissell products, he had pottery or beads or shells or items like that. This episode of The Trail Less Traveled is sponsored by the Missoula-based and locally grown Mountain Meadow CBD. Their hemp is grown organically, and all of their products are organic as well. 
Mountain Meadow utilizes a living soil technique that helps ensure the symbiotic relationship between the plants, the soil, and the insects. CBD has many therapeutic benefits, including, but not limited to, anxiety, joint pain, gut health, deeper sleep, depression, and as an immune system booster. Mountain Meadow CBD is a family-owned farm with very reasonable prices due to the fact that there are no middlemen between you and your product. They offer CBD tinctures in different strengths, pain solve, lip balm, vapes, and pre-rolls. You can find out more by visiting mountainmeadowcbd.com or on Instagram at mountainmeadowcbd. We're sitting here in the Sonoran Desert. It's late morning. We're underneath a canvas tent. There's a fire burning mesquite wood. And I'm sitting with Arturo Ramirez, and he is a humble artist. He works a lot with symbolism from around the world, mainly with uh, Mesoamerican symbolism is one of his favorites, and he works with gourds a lot as well. Before we close the show, Arturo, I wanted to come back to something beautiful that you said the other day about when we first came out of the cave, the first thing that we saw was the gourd. Yeah, the reason I said that is because the Creator has given mankind everything they could possibly need in life. And the most interesting thing I think he gave humans is a gourd for various reasons. Obviously, if you crawled out of the cave, you didn't have pockets because you didn't have on your stonewashed Jordache jeans. So you needed something to put something in, and that would have been the gourd for water, for food, for carrier seeds, to carry your items back to camp, whatever it was. So that's why I said that. Arturo, can we end your show with three bits of advice? My first bit of advice is to slow down. This world has just managed somehow, day by day, to speed up faster and faster. I think the beautiful thing that came out of the major event that happened in 2020 was that it made everybody slow down and take a step back and reevaluate everything in their life. Um, yes, it made some people very uneasy, and yes, it did create a lot of heartache for a lot of people, but I think it, as a whole for everybody involved, everybody had to slow down and, and take a deep breath and reevaluate almost everything in their life. And so my first piece of advice is just slow down and take your time. You know, don't, don't always be in a rush to be somewhere or get something done or, or get somewhere because it's coming. So just slow down and take your time. Second piece of advice would be probably just to be just a kinder, gentler human being. There's enough angst to go around, I think. And so we need just more people that are if you see somebody stumbling, help them up. If you see somebody that needs a drink, you know, take them a drink. Just to be kind to your fellow human being and love through your heart and love your fellow mankind. And my third piece of advice would be just to live a happy life. I mean, there's so many people that look at the unhappiness and, and they point it out in the mirror to themselves day in and day out and they don't make any changes that would help them and so just to be a, a humble happy person just find the happiness in every every there's happiness in everything and uh, I don't look for anything that's wrong in life it's coming but when it comes okay then we'll deal with it but until it comes just live like you're living a happy fun life and just enjoy life moment by moment that's that 
Arturo, I want to say thank you so much for your time and energy joining me here by the fire today and sharing your stories. Thank you. Thank you. Namaste, Missoula, and my friends around the world. Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, the Trail 1033's locally harvested adventure radio series dedicated to collecting stories and sounds from around the world. The show premieres every Sunday evening at 6 Mountain Time, and you can stream the show live online by visiting trail1033.com. The Trail Less Traveled is also a podcast available on all platforms, and you can view the full show archive, photography, and learn more about our outreach programs by visiting the official website, traillesstraveled.net. My adventure tip this week involves a desert survival tip. There's a common myth going around that you can survive by drinking the water within cactuses. I want to warn you to make sure you do research on what cactuses are and are not okay to eat. Some cactus can actually kill you faster. Other than that, remember to stay on high ground if there is even a small chance of a flash flood, because most people in the desert die not from running out of water, but by being washed away by flash floods. That's it for this week's adventure, my friends in Missoula and around the world. But until next week, I encourage you to do something for Mother Earth and also get outside. Shred the gnar, because as you know, the gnar does not shred itself. Hello there, Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, and I want to thank our sponsor, New West Knife Works. When you love the tools you use, everyday chores become a joy. A finely crafted knife is an extension of the hand that welds it. That's the motivating idea behind New West Knife Works founder, Corey Milligan. Milligan moved to Jackson Hole to pursue the good life in his early 20s. To earn a living while enjoying the outdoors, he worked as a line cook in local restaurants. His interest in cutlery came from the desire to make a knife that would better express his love of cooking. New West Knife Works was born out of that passion, a passion which continues to keep the company on the cutting edge. All of New West Knife Works culinary, hunting, and recreational knives are made in the Tetons with the finest American steel and tested by the professional chefs, guides, anglers, and hunters of Jackson Hole. From the New York Times and Wall Street Journal to Bon Appetit and Forbes, top tastemakers appreciate cutlery that is as beautiful as it is useful. Visit newwestknifeworks.com. Support for The Trail Less Traveled comes from listeners such as yourself. For the cost of a cup of coffee once a month, you can support The Trail Less Traveled podcast as well as our international outreach program. To become a Patreon supporter, visit patreon.com slash Traveled. On this episode, I'd like to give a Patreon shout out for the podcast hosted by my good friend, Steve Saroff. Steve's podcast is called Montana Voice. Montana Voice is a podcast of short stories and life lessons told through the truth of fiction. You can find the Montana Voice podcast on all platforms. The trail less traveled is fact, but if you want to listen to some fiction, I would highly recommend Montana Voice. 
Montana Voice is a podcast and web magazine of stories and truth with lessons on making, losing, and rediscovering fortunes of several kinds. Visit montanavoice.com.